there's a time and place to run a negative program. And that would be in a boot camp type environment or a SEAL training type environment where you just want to throw everything you can at these people and see what they have. But anytime somebody is a beginner at something, it's a blank slate in their head. So the only thing you guys are doing by yelling at them and pointing mistakes is you're programming them for failure. Don't tell them the three, four things they're doing wrong when you can just tell them the one thing to do correct. That will program them for success. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters. I sound very excited about that today. And welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or individuals that have really mastered a particular tool of influence to get to the bottom of what it actually takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, we all feel fear. Many of us, even those you least expect, I promise, live with it as a daily companion. However, what we do with fear, what we do with that sensation when it arrives is often the difference between freezing, the bunny in the headlights, without the ability to move or adapt, or proactively seeking fear as one of nature's best tools to sharpen our abilities. So how do you feel it and still stay present? Stay able to master your inner landscape, harness it to take yourself to new levels of performance despite the adrenaline that feels like it's running through your veins a thousand miles an hour. In today's interview, we are going to dive into that world, into those questions, the world of mastering fear with the extraordinary Brandon Webb. Now, Brandon is a former US Navy SEAL sniper, a New York Times bestselling author, an experimental aircraft pilot, an entrepreneur, the list goes on. He left home at the tender age of 16 and joined the US Navy to become a Navy SEAL. His first permanent assignment was as a helicopter aircrew search and rescue swimmer and aviation warfare systems operator. As a SEAL, Brandon completed four deployments to the Middle East. He also received numerous Distinguished Service Awards, including the Presidential Unit Citation, awarded to him by President George W. Bush, and the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with a V device for valor in combat. After ending his Navy career early, after a decade of service, he went on to embark on an equally distinguished entrepreneurial journey that, first shot out of the gate, literally resulted in him losing everything. Now, that's not an unusual story. It it happens way more than most of us discuss. So undeterred from that, picking himself up from that, he then went on to found Hurricane Media, a fast-growing military-focused digital content network which today is valued at over $100 million. So all of that, and yet, what piqued my interest in Brandon at first wasn't his incredible journey, and it is incredible, But actually, in reading a preview chapter, I had been sent from his latest book, Mastering Fear and Navy SEALs Guide, in which he first talked, first and foremost, talked about trying to teach his best friend Kamal to swim. 
helping a, a close friend through a crippling fear that had been with him for a lifetime, which he successfully did in one week, set about this fascinating process for Brendan where he decided to break down everything he had ever learned about mastering fear, both as a SEAL and as a, in his own entrepreneurial journey. And at the crux of that process, he discovered something really interesting. And I'll just read this quick quote from his book. It's not about becoming physically stronger or tougher or more aggressive. It's about learning how to identify and change the conversation in your head. Every battle, triumph and defeat you have ever had first took place in your mind. Now it's that, the mental battle of fear, that we're going to jump into today. Including, as part of this conversation, we go through the importance of keeping the sharks out of your head. You have no idea how many times I've said this to myself over the past few weeks. Keep the sharks out of your head. The difference between mastering fear and overcoming fear. Now this is pivotal. In Brandon's words, if you see fear as the enemy, you've already lost. A simple model to switch the mental switch on fear. This is known as the, the seal secret weapon. How to use the charge from fear. Notice that if you take away all of the emotion from the word fear, it is simply a charge to sharpen ourselves. And honestly, most successful people I know when I thought about it, they literally move towards that charge when they feel it. They have learned to be attracted to that charge because they know what lives on the other side. The practice of drown-proofing and why it's essential to replacing fear with a sense of clarity, knowing that you have already mentally faced the worst. And why, I love this one, in the words of Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and what to do in that moment. If, you, if you've ever heard the quote, what would you do right now if you were not afraid? It's one of my favorites. After listening to this interview, I, I dare you not to change it as I did to what would I do right now if I focused this fear? So please grab yourself a coffee, a Red Bull, whatever your caffeine poison of choice, nothing like facing fear with a healthy dose of adrenaline, and get ready to journey inside one of the most misunderstood and underutilized parts of the human condition. Enjoy my conversation with the incredible Brandon Webb. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon Webb. Thanks for having me, Julie. You're welcome. Um, I want to kick off the way I always kick off this podcast, and it's to ask the question whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason I ask this question is I find often that people have this story, there's this pervading idea that in order to be influential, to stand up, to have your ideas heard, to write a book, um, you need to be an extrovert. And so I'm doing my own kind of social experiment. Yeah, I would definitely say extrovert. But I agree with you. Like you look at a, somebody like Banksy, nobody really knows who he is, but he's extremely influential with his work. So yeah, I, I, I definitely would agree that you do not need to be extroverted to have influence. I know that you had said in your book that after, I think it was after you had left um, the SEALs, you end up, you actually ended up going 
undergoing public speaker training just to try and, and kind of tap into that part of you that's comfortable getting up and speaking. How was that to go from such an almost um, introverted profession where you're, you're head down, you're in your own sphere, making things happen, to you know, writing a series of incredible books and then being asked to get up and speak on stage about those? I actually, when I went to military instructor training school, it was two weeks, and that was the best media training I had had. Like, so I spent the most of my career you know, not up in front of large groups, but when you get your teacher credential for the military, I, I was uh, training snipers at the time, and you have to go through this instructor training course, and they videotape you up in front of a, a you know, your fellow instructor train trainees and you learn how people fill gaps in their thoughts with ums and ahs and <laughs> yeah like you know you, you had to count for each other as you're going up there and it was i probably had 50 uhs the first time i i taught but it, it was a that was my real first i would say media public speaking training and then actually becoming an instructor for the, the SEAL sniper course up in front of a class of 20 Navy SEALs. It's, it's a very tough audience. So you really need to have your materials prepared and have a lot of confidence in front of, in front of that audience. So that was where I really got my first training. And then I remember when we had, if you can remember back when the, the Navy SEAL snipers shot the pirates that were holding Captain Phillips hostage uh, off the coast of Somalia. Uh, that was the first time I was out. I was a sniper, a former SEAL sniper. SEAL snipers are the ones who rescued uh, Captain Phillips with this coordinated shot. And I got asked to go on Anderson Cooper on CNN live. And that was my first time I'd ever been on live television, which is very similar to getting up in front of a large audience because there's no retakes, there's no edits. You just have to go and deliver and and, and not make any mistakes, hopefully. But uh, And then I started, after my first book, I started getting offers to speak. And, you know, I, I had to practice at it. it was, I wasn't great at it the first couple times. And what I talk about in and mastering fear also is like everybody has everybody deals with fear and it's just knowing that okay that little bit of nervous energy is a good thing it kind of keeps you on your toes but um, you know public speaking is I think it's ranked right up there right in the top three fears of everyone I, I think it it's, it is and and for somebody with your experience and, and background does that seem strange to you that it's something that seems so innocuous would rank so highly up there I don't think so because I I would say in school I was terrified to get up in front of the class um, and when you're especially when you're up in front of strangers it's there's something about it that you know unless you've trained for it and done it and gotten used to it which I I have you know it's a scary thing <laughs> It's so simple, right? But it is, it's scary. It's one of the things I was so proud of my, my daughter's um, 13 and she graduated into high school last year. This year she's a 
a ninth grader. Uh, so, you know, first year of high school. Last year, she emceed her entire end of school. Uh, they had this big event where the parents and the kids were doing shows, and she was like emceeing the whole thing. She wrote jokes. She had her little speech. I was so proud of her because <laughs> at 13, there's no way in hell you're going to catch me <laughs> doing that. No. I mean, if yeah. you'd have asked me my name at 13, I probably would have mumbled something and put my head down and walked away. Yeah, no, she's amazing. I know that since since leaving the SEALs, and we're going to talk more about about your experiences both in the SEALs and also as, as an incredibly successful businessman since that point, you, the latest book that you wrote, and you've written a number of them, is Mastering Fear and Navy SEALs Guide. And the premise of that book being that we we all live with fear on a daily basis, even as a SEAL, and it's how we live with it that matters. And we'll get onto the importance of the word mastering. I love the fact that you use the word mastering fear rather than overcoming fear. And we'll get into, I know you have strong feelings about the use of the word overcoming later. But one of the stories I heard you tell that inspired the book um, is about your best friend, Kamal. Can you, can you tell that story about why your experiences with Kamal really led you to create this book in the first place? Sure. So... I met Kamal, we had both moved to New York about the same time. He came from the Silicon Valley and by all means, you know, lived through the tech bubble. He, his brother and him, he's a part partner in Angelist, uh, his brother Naval. Uh, but Kamal runs a uh, technology venture capital fund. He's a best-selling author, some amazing, some amazing books. Uh, one of the books first books that kind of put him on the map was love yourself like your life depends on it. And Kamal and I just became really close. And I had found out through being his friend that he was terrified of the water. Like he'd never learned how to swim. And as a 40 year old guy, I just, I was like, come on, this is crazy. And, and, and for one, I told him, I, I said, I can't be your friend. <laughs> Given my background being a Navy SEAL, like this is crazy. You have to let me teach you. Um, and he was talking about, he was in conversations with me about, oh, maybe there's this immersion course I can go to here and there. And I said, look, let me teach you. And he was a little skeptical because he said I had Olympic swimmers try and teach me, but they just haven't been able to, to kind of get me past my fear of the water. So I, I said, give me a week every morning, Monday through Friday, just commit to it. So he committed. I, and I put together a rough curriculum for him that had these, uh, we call it in the, the SEAL teams, crawl, walk, run. So I knew I had to kind of build up his confidence over time. And so I, I got him in the pool. And this is a guy that, you know, we're, we're at an indoor pool. He gets in the pool, you know, gripping with this tight grip, the, the steel ladder, let's go, and like rushes to grab the side right away. Like I was like, wow, it's even... Like it, it, the fear was obvious and, and I knew the thing that a lot of people that aren't comfortable in the water don't like putting their face in the water. And that was the first thing I did. I said, you're going to do 50 reps, put your face in the water, face out of the water, face in the water, in the water, face out. And so I did these like small confidence building steps with him. And then, you know, a guy that, you know, would barely let go of the side of the pool on Monday, on Friday, he jumped in, did a cannonball 
sunk himself 10 feet down to the bottom and held his breath on the bottom of the pool and then pushed up. And after that week, we we're on the subway and he said, you changed my life. Like you have to write a book about this. Nobody really taken the time to think about my fear of the water and, and help me overcome that and then teach me some swim strokes because I wanted to show people that and showcase my own stories, but some very successful people, including uh, astronaut Scott Kelly, who was afraid he wasn't good enough to apply for the astronaut program, and now is the longest American in space. Uh, I wanted to show people that they're not alone. Like every people that you would look up to and think of as massively successful all have fear. Like we all have our fears, and it's the people that have the ability to confront them as a habit are able to kind of live the life that they want and and it never goes away right that's what we said it's it's not something you overcome it's it's something that you, you kind of master that process i think one of the things that i loved one of the things i loved about that story is because you know you had mentioned how amazing kamal was but just some some more background you know he had he had meditated with Tibetan monks in the Dalai Lama's monastery. He had trekked the Himalayas. He had studied to be an ER doctor, served in the U.S. Army, launched tech companies, runs his own VC firm, best-selling author. And the reason I mention all of that is that this was not a man that had difficulty learning a skill. This was not a man who had difficulty applying himself. This wasn't a man who had difficulty breaking something down and mastering it. Y it, it wasn't the lack of ability or proficiency that stood in his way. It was, it was purely fear. And so I know that, that that got you thinking about an experience that you had had two decades before, about 1995 in the Persian Gulf when you were in a helicopter doing sonar ops um, above a destroyer and attempting to land and, and how that experience shaped your understanding of the difference between being highly skilled and being able to master your own fear. I was a junior helicopter crewman. Before I went to the SEAL program, I was a search and rescue swimmer and a trained sonar operator in the back of helicopters, um, Sikorsky HS-60s. We were air, based on the aircraft carrier, and we went out to do a nighttime, um, night, some nighttime training. And we were, it was a moonless, starless night, very um, just like ink, inky black. And we were all on night vision and the, the mission, we were, you know, over a hundred miles out. So we, in order to get back to the carrier, we had to get fuel on this smaller, uh, destroyer and, and the destroyer, most destroyers have these small landing pads on the back of the deck and, um, somebody that's serving as an air traffic controller to guide you in. Uh, but we had come off our night vision goggles and, you know, in hindsight, we didn't allow enough time to, to, for our, our eyes to dark adapt. It takes about 20 minutes for your eyes to go from uh, a lighted environment to become dark adapt. And it, it's uh, just scientifically proven. So we, we came off our night vision. We called up the, the destroyer you know, about 15 miles out. They were clearing us on board. And, and what's common is for the pilots to have the, the two crew in the back, one of the crew would uh, open the door and spot. So they slowed the helicopter down to 100, 100 knots, which was the speed to open the door. Um, I got, I was in a 
but the senior crewman, Rich Freeze, was in the left seat. I unstrapped, I got into my gunner's belt, which is this belt that straps to your chest and hooks you into the helicopter. Uh, I opened the door and, you know, I, and it takes probably, you know, the doors open, I'm getting situated and then I had to unplug and replug in my helmet to the, to the door internal communications plug. So by, by the time I got set up, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I check in with the pilots and I look out uh, for what should be the ship. And I don't see any lights cause I'm looking down to the front, uh, at about two o'clock and down, like where the landing light should be for the destroyer. And I don't see any lights and it. It just was a confusing situation. And then I realized I looked up even with the, the helicopter, the nose of the helicopter. And I saw the lights there and it was, and then we hit the water. And water started coming in the, the cabin. And, and what happened was the pilot uh, in the right seat got vertigo and didn't tell anybody. And thankfully, the helicopter got slow because if we were going fast, we would have all died on impact. We would or you know been knocked unconscious and helicopter flips upside down because the top heavy and sinks to the bottom. So thank, thankfully, we were going, he got low and slow and put it in the water and the, the left seat pilot Kennedy recognized that this guy was completely out of it. Like he was mumbling to himself and he pulled, we all started screaming for altitude uh, over the ICS. And so Kennedy yanked us out of the water and it took us as a crew, I think th three passes because everyone was really shaken up. Uh, and, but we, we landed it on the destroyer and made it back to the aircraft carrier and, and we had to file an incident report. And I remember the maintenance officer, nobody believed us what had happened. They're like, there's no way you landed that thing and water came in the cabin and, and you like were able to, to yank it out of the water. And until they started unscrewing the compartments and all the seawater started coming out. Um, so it was pretty, pretty wild. And unfortunately, both pilots got their helicopter commander uh, papers temporarily yanked, but I, I thought Kennedy deserved the medal. So what happened there? I mean, obviously, you're, you're never going to know what goes on in the in the insides of someone's mind when a situation like that happens. But you, for the pilot himself, you know, you're talking about a highly trained, similar to Kamal, you know, you're talking about a highly trained individual. What what do you believe either happened or was missing in that moment? that enabled the fear to just overwhelm. And I know in your book you said he was just saying, you know, oh God, oh God, oh God, over and over again over the intercom. What do you believe was, was either missing or happened that people can learn from in terms of mastering fear in a moment? Well, here's, here's something that I think what really contributed to the Kennedy's ability to pull, to like really pull it together and then and, and literally pull us out of there. He had, he was the goofiest pilot in the squadron. He was kind of a, you know, people would describe him probably as a little bit nerdy, but, but well loved by everybody, especially the air crew. He had been picked on his whole life. And so, you know, and when I look at my fellow SEAL trainee candidates, like the guys that 
end up making it through training and it's a 90% washout rate. All of us have dealt with adversity. Uh, we'd been through it before. Like I left home at 16. My dad kicked me out of the sailboat, which was our home in, in the South Pacific. Uh, we were on a sailing trip to New Zealand actually. And, and so I think Kennedy had, he had grown up being picked on and in these situations and overcame it to be a Navy helicopter pilot. Like he had overcame a lot in his life. So he had the life kind of the life skills to, to deal with that situation where you look at the profile, of the other pilot, very like silver spoon in his mouth and it really had everything pretty easy, always, you know, had an easy life. So he just up to that point, he'd never really been in a, a tough jam like that. Um, so I think that, I think that helps. And when I talk about a mastering fear is you can create situations like I did with Kamal taking these baby steps, uh, baby steps of confidence, but you can create small situations for yourself to kind of artificially, you know, recreate these, these life experiences that some people experience and overcome and end up like my 13 year old daughter, Olivia, like she, you know, I, I'd like to think that I had a lot to do with that just because we've ha I've had a lot of conversations with her about mental management, positive psychology and overcoming fear. And there's no way I could do what she did at, at 13 years old, but she, you know, she had, she has enough in it to get up in front of hundreds of parents and students and run a whole, you know, half day event for school. So um, I try to develop this system in mastering fear so people can, whether it's a small fear or a big fear, kind of have a system to, to approach whatever fear is holding them back, whether it's career, relationships, public speaking, fear of the water, flying. It was, um, it was in, in reading your book and, and hearing your voice in my head, it was actually a surprise to me that one of the largest things you seemed to learn from, from all your experiences, including the military, about fear is that it's not about becoming, and I'm using your, your words here, it's not about becoming physically stronger or tougher or more aggressive. It is a, about learning how to identify and change the conversation in your head. And I loved that because, you know, not, not everybody is going to be the phys physically the most strong or capable and not everybody's going to be the toughest and not, not everyone's going to be the most aggressive but anybody can identify and change the the monologue that goes on in their own minds why does it start there and why is that important so i was fortunate enough when i got asked to help overhaul the, the seal sniper program uh, we i met a guy lanny basham who was an olympic gold medalist and he was really a pioneer of positive psychology and mental management. At the time, Lanny was a world champion in the early 70s. Um, he was at the Army Marksmanship Unit. So he, he was a world champion as a rifle shooter, went to the Olympics, I think in 72 in Germany, and was expected to win gold. Like at the, He was a world champion. He kind of thought he had it in the bag, and he let some of his competitors get in his head. They were intentionally saying stuff to get in his head and it, and it happened and he had the worst performance of his life and ended up 
still winning the silver medal. Uh, but as Lanny told, shared with us, he's like, the worst thing you can do is win the silver, silver medal. Cause he's like, what, when people find out you're an Olympian, they ask what you do. Then they ask, how'd you place? And he says, as soon as I tell them silver, the first question out of their mouth is, well, who won gold? <laughs> so he was just tortured by this. And he, at the time, the philosophy and the psychology community was, no, we're just going to make you okay with being second place. And Lanny said, this, that can't be the answer. And so he went and surveyed every Olympic gold medalist he could get access to over one year period because he was an Olymp U.S. Olympic team member. You know, people would, would take his phone call and he found that there were certain traits of champions. And one of the biggest traits is self-talk and, and not letting adverse situations um, dictate outcome. And so it's the conversation we have in our head and the self-talk that is extremely important. And, and that when Lanny was consulting with us in the sniper program really taught us um, how to, how to deal with the self-talk. And he also said, look guys, you're, you're running a negative teaching environment when you don't have to, like there's a time and place uh, to, to run a negative program. And that would be in a boot camp type environment or a SEAL training type environment where you just want to throw everything you can at, at these people and see what they have, see if they have what it takes to, to deal with it. But we were getting qualified Navy SEALs. There's no reason we should be failing 30% of them. So he said, anytime somebody is a beginner at something, it's a blank slate in their head. So the only thing you guys are doing by yelling at them and pointing mistakes is you're programming them for failure. He's like, don't tell them the three, four things they're doing wrong when you can just tell them the one thing to do correct. And he's like, that will program them for success. And then we started, so, so he ran this whole program with us, but one of the most important things I took away from that was self-talk, like how to recognize when that negative self-talk creeps into our head, which it does for all of us on a daily basis. And then what can you do to kind of push it out? We started teaching people to visualize like practice in their head. And for the first time ever, we had students scoring perfect scores on their, on their shooting test. Um, so I just, I'm a huge believer because I saw it happen right in front of my face. Now in my world, we, we call that a reframe, which is a fairly technical term but in yours I loved it you you called it keeping the sharks out of your head which I just I like much better I'm going to use it use that from here on in uh, and you you introduced that kind of mantra keep the sharks out of your head with this incredible story about when you were 13 years old working your first job as an assistant on a dive boat yeah so I got this amazing job in a dive boat called the peace it was a 70 foot boat the big eagle on the front of it and like a swashbuckling uh, you know, playboy of the high seas, Bill McGee, who owned the boat. We had a hot tub on the boat, private chef, and we would take these sport divers out to the islands off California. It was amazing, amazing job and, and experience. And one of the captains taught me how to dive, Roger, and I got certified to dive at 13 and then probably had, you know, Towards the end of summer, I had a few dives under my belt, maybe 40, 40, 50 dives. And I remember we were anchored at San Miguel Island, which is the northernmost 
a island in, in the small island chain off of uh, central California. And we were out there on the backside. There was this big sea lion and seal habitat. And it was, it's amazing to dive in the daytime and see the, the seals and sea lions swimming around. And, um, but it's one of the largest habitats. And as you know, being in Australia, what eats, uh, seals and sea lions are great white sharks and we had seen sharks out of the water and i just started becoming terrified of sharks so i was like 13 years old and we're we're diving the spot uh, and we had put the pat we'd fed the passengers put everyone down for the night and the crew the, the kind of core crew slept in the top of the the boat in the wheelhouse and i remember getting awoken by Captain Mike, who was this crusty Irish sea captain, telling me to get my wetsuit on because it was obvious when he woke me up that the weather, the boat was rocking. We needed to move to calmer water so the passengers could sleep. And he said, look, we tried to pull the anchor. It's stuck. Get your wetsuit on and, and go un unstuck it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I've done that a few times in the daytime, but now you know, we're doing, it's at night, the visibility is surely, the bottom is churned up, there's, visibility is crap, uh, there's great white sharks, and I was just like, you gotta be crazy, like, this. there's no way I'm going in there, I'm having this conversation in my head, and I just, it was, I was terrified, and I, you know, I was like, okay, I, one thing at a time, I was like, I'm just gonna get down and put my wetsuit on, and then, okay, I'll put my, my tank on, and then, grab my flashlight and it's just like, okay, now I'm standing on the bow and they open the gate and I, I jump in and swim as fast as I can down this chain and sea lions are whizzing by me because I could see the bioluminescence and I was just freaked out. And 50 feet down, I got, I saw the chain wrapped around this big ledge and I got it, you know, I got it unwrapped and came up and, and then I realized, you know, after the dive was over, I was like, wow, okay, that wasn't as bad as I had made out in my head. And I, and I think that example is, is an example everyone could learn from because most of the, of the time, the fears that we have, we make way, way worse and, and bigger than it is in our, we make it up in our heads. And it's just not that when you realize and confront that fear, you realize it's not that bad. And, and that was something I learned early on, fortunately, as a 13 year old kid. And then, you know, I didn't fear sharks anymore. I, you know, I, I kind of said, okay, I, I can do this. Um, you know, and, and maybe there's like a little bit of that fear, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna stop me anymore. Like, I'm not gonna let it, I'm not gonna let it bother me anymore. And it's just like skydiving. I was, I had lost a best friend you know, fast forward to the, when I was a new guy SEAL at SEAL Team 3, I lost a really good friend skydiving in a training accident where he was learning to skydive and, and had a, just a terrible malfunction and couldn't recover from it and died. And I was, it really messed with my head, but I still did it. And I always got nervous before I jumped out. And I just learned that that's, that nervousness sometimes and that fear will keep you alive. Uh, but it's, it's not something that's going to hold me back. And I ended up really enjoying skydiving. You had said that, you know, this, this ability to be able to flip the switch, um, flip the switch in your head, manage your own men mental self-talk is the, the secret weapon 
of the, of an entire generation of of Navy SEALs. And you've also, you know, talked about the fact that you run your own podcast, which is called The Power of Thought, and you've had incredible guests on there, you know, World War II fighter pilots, astronauts, musicians, billion-dollar hedge fund managers. And even in talking to all of those people, that, that same core character trait came out again and again, which is those that stood out, those that reached a high level of performance, had this ability to be able to see and flip that mental switch. So... How, I mean, how do you do that? Firstly, a story arrives in your head. And that story is, you know, I'm scared of sharks, I'm scared of skydiving, I'm scared of public speaking, whatever it is. And then you said, then you need to re- redirect it. And I was, I was kind of thinking about that. And I was like, okay, redirect it. What does that involve? I feel it come on. I can, I can hear it start. How do, you, how do you redirect it in that moment? I mean, that's where the self-talk comes in. It's it's recognizing, okay, this I'm having this conversation in my head and it's just not productive. I'm a big believer in, in mantras and whether it's write it down on in your phone, on a piece of paper, uh, but kind of learn and then repeat it to yourself. Uh, but that the self-talk is huge. Um, and the, the biggest thing I, I hope people take away from Mastering Fear is they have to get like it has to become a, a habit like you have to develop a habit of confronting fear and and just make it a habit so i like i honestly look at any adverse situation that i've been in and it have we find ourselves there all the time like this this summer i had a, like one of the worst months in my business ever and seeing like my whole team panic and despair and, and kind of focus on the problems that was happening. What, what happened was due to that, we spent a lot of money on Facebook and social media on our e-commerce products. So we advertise and we, we target certain audiences. Well, the, between the election stuff that was having, Facebook was having issues with their algorithm they had labeled us as selling guns. Well, we don't sell guns, but they killed our entire campaign. Like $450,000 in lost revenue is what it kind of totaled up the damage. And I just said, you know what? We can sit here and and complain about it or we can figure out a way out of this. And that's the best thing that we can do is focus on the path forward. And uh, But I see so many people get caught up in their fear in this conversation and they can't move forward. It's, and I tell that other story about the monkey and the coconut, right? It's like we hold on to these, we create these prisons for ourselves and we're frozen in fear. Um, and the coconut story is how they trap coconuts in jungle survival training school is, or I'm sorry, how they trap monkeys. They dig a hole, they bury a coconut and they put these uh, sharp sticks over the hole. And when the monkey, reaches in to grab the coconut, he tries to pull his hand out and the, and the sticks won't let the coconut in his hand out of the hole. All he has to do is drop the coconut, pull his hand out and he's done, he's free, he can run away. But they refuse, they just hold onto that coconut until the Filipino jungle tra- training instructor walks over and bonks him over the head and now he's monkey over a spit uh, for dinner and, and so, <laughs> I tell that story because it's so true. I see, I see people all the time 
that are just, they know they're passionate about music and they're extremely talented about music. Um, I think I even tell the story in, in the book about one of my friends and he's miserable in the family business and all he has to do is leave, but he just won't. Uh, because there's this like fear of what happens on the other side. The point that you make about one of the, the central tenets of mastering, mastering fear is to let go of the idea of safety, to, to understand that safety is an illusion and life is unpredictable and you're never truly safe, so you may as well, you may as well let go of the edge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so true, this massive disruption that's, that happens in today's workforce. Um, so, um, I, I, and it's common for me, I see these people, they have this just illusion of, of safety and it's just, they're not safe at all. Um, even in my own business, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, how do I stay a little bit ahead of these trends and how is the internet going to look five years from now, 10 years from now? Is it going to be a, are we going to, you know, flip down our, a lens over eye and become immersed in VR and, and experience the internet that way, you know, shop in a virtual environment, just like that movie or the book, uh, ready player one. Uh, so, you know, and imagine that if the internet just gets completely disrupted and, and that's the new internet, then, you know, that for inter- any company that makes money on online sales has to be on top of that. But uh, my, my point is, just to give some examples of this like false sense of safety, because it is illusion. Like none of us are safe. Life uh, throws stuff at us all the time. And you know, the, the people that I've seen be the most successful living the lives they want to live uh, in that. And I, it's up for each of us to define what success is for ourselves. I've, I've seen successful people living in the Bahamas teaching scuba diving in this amazing paradise resort is completely happy and living the life they want to live um, to people that are, you know, billion dollar hedge fund managers, but that's what they love to do. Uh, so, and then I see the people that are trapped, like I mentioned before, where they're letting fear of the unknown hold them back and they just won't let go of that coconut. Actually, you've, you've just reminded me of, of something else that you, that you talk about in the book, and that's the the distinction between overcoming fear and mastering fear, and and what you say is, you know, this book will not teach you how to overcome fear. You don't believe in overcoming fear. In fact, fear is a prerequisite. Fear is important because fear sharpens you, and it it widens your radar, and it makes you pay attention, and it makes you move. Just as you were saying in your business, you constantly have a radar. What's changing? What do we need to do? And you use the example of a fear being a lot like fire. Out of control, it's destructive, but you learn how to use it and you can do practically anything. Um, and the fact that you, you are, rather than asking yourself the question, what will you do if you're not afraid, which is a question you hear a lot, you ask instead, what would you do if you were afraid? What would I do right now if I was afraid of disruption? Has that subtle shift been sounds like it's been pretty pivotal in your in your career and also in your business i mean absolutely it i remember when i was out of the i made the decision in 2006 to leave the navy start a business and you know invest 
my life savings in the business and three and a half years later, housing market collapsed in the US, global recession, my business went away completely. It's the short version and I lost everything. And then my wife at the time said, you know, rightfully so. She's like, I, we just, she's like, I don't want to be married to you anymore. <laughs> and so it, that was tough. Like it was a tough year for me, but I, I drew on that, that time when, when I ran the sniper program and all those lessons learned around positive psychology and mental management, that there was just no need to focus on the bad. Like it just didn't, it doesn't matter. Like it happened. You just got to deal with it and, and move on. And so I started to look for all the positives in the situation, you know, that my, that I still had a good relationship with my kid's mom and her family. I had learned, even though my business failed and I lost everything, I learned this like tremendous amount of experience in business. Um, and it was incredibly valuable and that I could just go raise money or borrow money through a business government business loan program and buy a business, you know, the, the cash flow. And then I started, when I reframed that conversation, I, I think started to look up and I, I started to feel better about myself and, and I was able to, to, to dig out of that. Um, but that, you know, that was an example, a real pivotal moment for me realizing, wow, I could use this stuff as a civilian on the outside. And, and it really is, a, it's something I could apply to my, my life outside of the, the Navy SEAL teams. To go back to your experiences for a minute, I loved the example that you gave of of your moment of, of choosing to decide, and that was during, I think, what's probably one of the most legendary parts of, of Navy SEALs training, which is called Hell Week, and even I have heard about Hell Week. Just very briefly, why, we don't need to go into all of it, but why is it called Hell Week, and, and can you talk through that moment where you realized you had decided, because I know you said in the book that out of the 220 guys in your class, you were the one guy that nobody wanted to be. I showed up the training just out of shape. I'd come off of a aircraft carrier deployment and there's not many places you can swim on an aircraft carrier. I, I was still good in the water, but my, I just, for some reason I didn't, I did the bare minimum uh, physical fitness standards to pass the entrance exam. And then I found out very quickly that I was incredibly out of shape. Like I wasn't in SEAL training shape. And so I, my body started breaking down and I started out of, when we first started uh, training, it's divided into three phases. It's about seven months in total time, the, the selection course. The first phase is the conditioning phase, which, which uh, finishes with Hell Week, which is a five and a half days of physical activity, like two mile ocean swims at night. Uh, you're constantly awake, no sleep. Um, they put you to sleep one time just to get you in REM and wake you up 30 minutes later to torture you. Like it's t terrible. One of the most rude wake-ups besides my 13-year-old self um, with the sharks. That was probably the worst wake-up I've had in my life. But um, in the beginning, I was just that guy. Everyone says, don't be that guy. Well, I was that guy. I was Instructors knew me on a first-name basis. Or my run times were terrible. They take the last half of the – on a six-mile – conditioning run the last half of the pack gets kind of it's like the herd right the herd gets 
the slow herd gets culled and we're, we get extra physical activity. They call it the goon squad. Um, so everyone, everyone else is stretching and drinking water. You're just getting tortured even more. Uh, and when we did our physical training, you know, push-ups, jumping jacks, uh, flutter kicks, all this other stuff, I was always getting called out. Like we're not going to lunch. The whole class is not going to lunch until Brandon does another 50 push-ups. And everyone's yelling at me, come on, come on. So, some guys are yelling encouragingly. Some guys are, you can tell they're just tired of me. Like I would, they wish that I would just quit. So I would, would stop the punishment for everybody. So I, I had had this first part of my experience. It was just terrible. Every day I had to wake up at four in the morning and realize I'm going to get it, get it no matter what. Cause at some point they know you and they're now they're looking for you. They, they, they smell the blood in the water. And I got right as hell week was starting. Uh, they, these four instructors pulled me aside and we're divided up into boat crews of seven and my, I had a boat crew leader and they said, Hey, Webb's going with us. And he says, well, what, what, where are you taking him? He's like, doesn't concern you. And so they took me out of the class and had me on the beach and just verbally and physically tortured me for an hour. And at the, it, that was, it wasn't, like they were trying to break me as, as an instructor later in my career. I, I could now know they were literally trying to break me and get rid of me. They thought I was too weak. And at the end of that hour, I just, something snapped inside me and I just looked at them and told them all to go screw themselves. That there's the only way that they're getting me out of there is on a, in a body bag. And at that point, they knew they could not break me mentally. And it was a huge turning point for me because they just, they couldn't do anything. They knew they threw everything they had at me. So what are they going to do to me? And when I remember, and they were playing mind games with me all the time. And I remember when we got into the first night of Hell Week, we did a, a six mile time run. And then they said, not good enough get stretch out. We're doing it over again. And, and then people just started to quit. They're like, really? We just did this intense run for time. And, and they were just like quitting. And I'm like, Oh yeah, well, I was just thinking to myself, welcome to my world. <laughs> I've been dealing with this for the whole time, but that was the turning point for me. And hell week was easy. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that there were the training gets harder and harder, but hell week I was, it was a real turning point for me. Um, and more, most people it's their, kind of the toughest part of the first phase you said that the 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 next step so you know first you have to decide with every every cell in your body so that no matter who would stare you down they could see it see it and feel it in, in every part in every part of you that you had made that decision so the first step is that the the next step after that is rehearsal. And, and I read that and I thought, okay, yep, rehearsal, do it over and over and over again. And I would I would call that being match fit and just muscle memory, getting it in your muscle memory. Now, but then you went on to say something else, which I didn't expect, which was practice makes perfect. I think you, use, you said the word is bullshit. The not true. Once you sign that check, resign that position, buy that house, walk to the altar, whatever it is, things will not go according to plan. And so if you're expecting perfect, if you're going in thinking that practice makes perfect, then you are, are doomed, doomed to fail. And it, 
it reminded me, my husband has this quote that he loves from Mike Tyson, which is, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, and so if practice doesn't make perfect, then I'm assuming, you know, you're not saying don't practice because I know that rehearsal is a huge part of the strategy that you, you talk about. So what does practice make? So, you know, I would say the point I was trying to make was you're not going to go out and have a, it's not going to be perfect. You can, like in some cases I talked about earlier, like you can mentally rehearse for, to, to achieve a high score or a perfect score um, at something. But in that process, you, you've already rehearsed for things that will go bad. Like you've thought about what could go bad um, because you know it's not going to go perfect. Uh, and you've rehearsed for those contingencies and, and you've, you're already kind of mentally handled it. And it's not hard for us to do these thought experiments like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? Well, this could happen. Well, okay. Well, I, how would I deal with that? Okay. Well, I've, and then you've like thought of it already. So when you're out, out doing it, it's like, oh yeah, I already kind of already dealt with that. And the perfect example of that is when Michael Phelps, um, he was in the finals at Beijing. I forget what swimming event, but he jumped in the pool at a finals event. His goggles flooded out immediately. And he had already mentally rehearsed this. He just started counting his strokes and knew when to flip, do his flip turn blind. And he ended up setting a world record and winning, winning another gold medal. And so that, that's an example right there. Like he had already, he had already rehearsed it. And that's like the mindset of a champion. Like, yeah, my goggles flooded, but I've already been here and I'm still going to win the race. And that, that's, that's the point I'm making. Um, my final question, or final question for you. If there, you know, we've been talking a lot about mastering fear, talking a lot about your experiences in some extreme situations, both military and business. If I put you on a stage... And in front of you, I could put every single person you would ever want to influence. And I gave you a microphone of five minutes. What's the one thing, if you could only, if you could only make them understand one thing, what would it be? I would tell them that anything they think possible is possible. And, and they are in control of their own destiny. Like they cannot let anyone else tell them what to do, how to be. Uh, and then I would, I would also layer on top of that, that, you know, one thing I, I was just talking today at lunch with my friend, Chris, it all comes down to like love, loving yourself, um, loving other people and being, being more compassionate. Um, it, it's, I remember, I don't know where I heard it from, but somebody told me it's much easier or it's, it's much harder to be kind than clever. And, and that's, that's really stuck with me, but that, that's what I would say. I love that. It's much harder to be kind than clever. I'm going to, I'm going to take that one on. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time. It was, it was insightful spending time with you in book form and it's been even more insightful spending time with you in person. So thank you, Brandon, for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much, Julie. Anytime.
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.